Hello and welcome to the Beer Business Finance Podcast, where we combine beer with finance to help you create delicious profits in your beer business. I'm your host, Kerry Shumway. I'm a certified public accountant, a former CFO for a beer distributor, and I love numbers. This podcast will provide you with useful financial guidance that you can implement right away in your beer business to make more money. In addition to this podcast, please visit beerbusinessfinance.com. Here you'll find free tools and resources, information on upcoming courses, and you can sign up to receive the weekly Beer Business Finance newsletter for free. Each week, we cover a specific financial topic to help you improve the financial results in your beer business. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Beer Business Finance Podcast. My name is Kerry Shumway and I'll be your host. Today I talk with Lester Jones, the Chief Economist for the National Beer Wholesalers Association. Lester tracks economic factors that impact the beer distribution industry and alcohol policy decisions at the federal, state, and local levels. He also evaluates and develops primary industry data, including economic impact, tax impact, sales, and volume data. So Lester and I talk about a number of subjects, but we dive really deep on the 2021 year in review. We look at trends on consumptions, package types, what's really selling out there. We dig in on seltzer, and we talk about what's going on at on-premise. When are we going to see that come back? So Lester provides a ton of data and also his insights and analysis on what the data is telling him. So I think there's a lot of value here uh, for everyone, information you can use to help drive better decisions in your beer business. So for now, please enjoy the podcast with Lester Jones, Chief Economist from the National Beer Wholesalers Association. It is great to have you here, and I'm excited to have this conversation today. We're going to dig into a lot of numbers. We're going to recap 2021, share a lot of great information with folks. But before we do that, why don't you tell people about your background and your journey uh, to become the chief economist of the National Beer Wholesalers Association? So I'm an economist, uh, undergraduate University of Maryland in Baltimore County in Maryland. And then I went up to University of Delaware where I got a, got a, a master's degree in economics and it was, it was business economics is what it's called. It was applied business economics. It was a program that was basically designed not to be an academic economist, but to serve as an economist in the business world. And it was a great program uh, just because everything was was short and to the point. I remember my first paper when I got there, the guy's like, you have a, this is a memo. It was an international trade memo. It was about the oil markets. He's like, here's a data set, one page. And I'm like, one page. You mean I don't have to write 20? <laughs> and I was so excited because I'm a numbers guy. I'm not a, you know, I'm not, a, not, I like liter- literature and writing, but if, if I have my druthers and I have a chance, I'll go for, for, for numbers. And so, you know, when I was in this program, everything was like, keep it to one or two pages. You, it has got to have a clean, concise executive summary. It's got to hit the point and it's got to be for the business world. And that was just a great program because when I, moving on, Moving through my career, I found myself working in different industries. I worked in healthcare, I worked in environmental, I worked in media, and all of those all of those tools from being clear and concise about the numbers and keeping it to one page was really was just a useful tool that I found. 
And uh, eventually, after working in a, a bunch of different industries, I found myself working at the Beer Institute in Washington, C, Washington D.C. That's the, uh, for those of you who don't know, the Beer Institute is the trade association that represents the large brewers in Washington, uh, Anheuser-Busch, Molson Coors, Heineken, Constellation, uh, and those guys. And then there's a bunch of supplier members like can manufacturers and used to be some bottle guys. I don't think the bottle guys are part of that any amount more. But anyway, it was a great, I spent, you know, number almost 10 years there. And after working for 10 years with the brewers, I moved over to the beer distributors to work for the MBWA, where I found myself doing a lot of the same things I've done my whole career, you know, get the numbers, analyze the numbers, get it into some clear, concise formats uh, and get it out there as quickly as you can so people can appreciate and think about what's going on in the beer industry. So that's kind of where I've come from and where I've been, but just accumulation of just various industries that have all proven to be very useful in talking about the beer industry, the environmental stuff I used to do with, you know, here we are in this ESG world where sustainability is such a big part of the brewing industry from the water to the recycling to the energy usage. Uh, media, when I worked for Nielsen, uh, Nielsen uh, Arbitron, the, uh, you know, working in the media world and understanding uh, how that operates, uh, just all those industries have come together to really help, you know, formulate how I look at the beer industry and how I talk about it. Oh, that's great. Yeah, there's always overlap, right, in different industries. You can learn something from one industry that seems completely unique, but then it translates almost perfectly to somewhere else, or at least the lessons you can draw. So I like that. I like how you're saying like clear, concise, one page, business focus. So it sounds to me like, you know, taking fairly com potentially complex data and making it relatable, right? And then, and then usable. So those are, those check a lot of boxes for me as well. I, you know, cause when I'm in finance, people tend to be like, well, I'm not really a finance guy, but if you can relate it in that fashion where it's short, it's to the point, you can do something with it. Um, I think that gets people on board. So that's, that's very cool. So tell me about, um, we'll get into specific data points, but generally speaking, what types of information uh, do you gather with the NBA, NBWA and where does that information come from? So I get data from wherever I can. I, like I said earlier on, I'm much more of a data guy, an analytical guy. I, 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 I always start. Uh, so my philosophy, you know, it's, it's demographics. It starts with the people and goes into the business and then goes into the specific market. So I always start with the demographics of, of whether it's the United States, whether it's the world, whether it's the local community or the county or the zip code. I really do like the census and the census has such a wealth of information out there. Uh, they do a great job at you know, giving you all the raw data, but then they have all these great dashboards and all these great little apps inside their, their, their website that are incredibly useful. So anyone who's doing a market validation, anyone who's trying to figure out why am I up? Why am I down? You know, what happened? Why did this side of town fall apart? And why is this side of town growing? All of that, all those answers to the basic business questions that impact us every day are actually sitting in, sitting in the US Census Bureau, Census Bureau. The US government has used your tax dollars to put it together. Now all you gotta do is spend a little time to go out and find it. So I've done a lot of talks over the years uh, at different MBWA events uh, talking about how 
you know, you could actually just go to the census and, and just by doing a little bit of research, you can actually find a lot of answers to questions that, that you know intuitively because beer distributors are out in the market every day, right? We're driving around, our sales guys are out there, our drivers are out there, our merchandise are out there, everyone's out there and they know these things in the back of their head, they see them happening, but the Census Bureau is actually the place where you go where you actually, you, you, you put the answer down on the paper and say, this is what's happening here. And that's just a great resource to go to. Uh, so that takes the demographic equation, you put that aside. Uh, then there's kind of the, the general market uh, <clears throat> analysis about what's actually happening in places like the labor market. So that's where you go to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And the Bureau of Labor Statistics is another great place, free, provided by your government through your tax dollars, so not necessarily free, no free lunch. But uh, you know, this is where you can go and you can look at the employment, you look at the wages, you look at the number of businesses, you look at the type of businesses, and there's all these data sets out there that describe it, in a very detailed level down to county and some cases zip code, exactly what's going on in the kind of the business side of your marketplace. And that's another great data, that's just another great place to go. And then there's all the related kind of international trade stuff. The Commerce Department puts out international trade statistics. I go to the TTB and I get uh, I get the, the beer production numbers because beer production is the defines beer supply and how much beer producers are willing to put out there. And I think that's just an important measure. It's not a, it's not the, it's not the, the consumer side. It's not the IRI or the Nielsen side of the data sets. It's the, it's the supply side. How much is entering the market? And it's, it's there every month. It's updated every month. And you can keep these trends and they're big, high level, 35,000 feet views of what's going on. And when you start bringing together the demographics, the economics, and the industry, you start formulating a picture in a macro sense of how our industry is doing. And of course, that's when you put it up against beer, wine, and spirits, non-alks, and all those other things. And you start formulating a, you know, a, a map of the U.S. beer industry and how it stands in position to economics, demographics, and its competing segments. And, and, and those are the big macro things. And of course, we have other more micro-related data sets, such as uh, Nielsen IRI, which are obviously things that I look at. And then we have this relationship with FinTech. If you haven't, uh, you guys haven't paid attention, we've been doing quarterly industry updates that are the uh, uh, a joint project between FinTech, who is your EFT, you know, the doing EFT transactions with retailers and distributors and MBWA and what I've been helping them for five years now kind of help formulate how to look at the data, how to organize the data, how to present the data. And that gives us an ability to look at on and off premise together uh, and then look at it across segments and brands and suppliers and try to get a feel. It's, it's unique because IRI and Nielsen obviously are all off premise and you have separate CGA that's doing on-premise, and you just don't really have a single data source uh, like FinTech that allows you to look at the industry as a whole. So I can look at supply-side data, tax-paid imports, what's being pushed into the market. I can look at FinTech data, which is that interaction between retailers and distributors, and I can look at Nielsen IRI, which is the interaction between consumers and retailers, and then you can start formulating a picture how 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 supply and demand works together to get beer to the market. 
And then you can also see the hiccups. You know, you can see where inventories are exploding and inventories are not quite where they need to be and where things just aren't working out. And that's the fun part about, you know, what I get to do as the economist for the MBWA. That's awesome. You know, the way you were describing it, I could tell how excited you were. Oh, it's, the data. It's, it's, it's just this, it's, it's just, for me, you know, I'm not, you know, so, so you may have a sales manager who's really focused in on just, you know, getting boxes from the warehouse to, you know, the retailer, right? And that's, and that's all he sees. And he sees it in a very myopic way, because that's his market. But you know that's happening all over the country, and in, in all those individual markets sum up to what's happening in the total, and that's what gets me all giddy and happy when I, when I see all the players interacting, and then it, it works out to, you know, an, an aggregate market that sometimes goes the way I think it is, and other times doesn't. So you know, I, I haven't mastered the crystal ball, and it's in my ability to forecast forward, but I think I'm learning a lot every day. So. I would say so. Would you recommend uh, or advise anyone to kind of play around with these different data sets? I mean, you mentioned the census, labor statistics and so forth. I mean, it seems, um, I guess I'm wondering if people don't do it because it might seem intimidating. Like, what am I going to do? Am I going on the census data? What am I looking at? So I guess a two-part question, would you, would you recommend people do it? And if so, what might be like a simple starting point, like a simple search? What would they do? Oh, oh so, so yeah. Yes, I highly recommend people experiment with this. Look at this. Uh, there's a thing called the uh, Census Business Builder. And it, in Census Business Builder, I have a slide deck that I use. If I've used it several times in different talks of mine to go out and introduce people to the Census Business Builder and your ability to do it gives you a it's a it's it's a it's a website. It's part of this censusbureau.com website. It's called Census Business Builder. It has a regional business builder and a, and a, I think a business uh, builder. And one kind of focuses on the geography and the other one focuses on the type of business. So let's say you want to go into your market area and you want to look at how restaurants and bars and stadiums are doing. You could actually go in there, find how many restaurants and stadiums and bars are in this general area, how they're doing, how many employees and all these characteristics about them. And then you can attach the demographic socioeconomic for the people that live around it. And you can develop this great profile of your market area based on bars, restaurants, taverns, or you can do it on grocery stores and convenience stores and drug stores. So it's, and, and it's, it's it, it, like I kind of said in the beginning, all, you know, local guys are out there. They know this about their market. Um, and, and you're living it every day. So, you know, the, you know your market, but here's a validation to what you're thinking and what you're observing. And that's what I like about it because it gives you the ability to validate what you see and observe, but also it might give you like, well, wait a sec, why, why, why is this part of town doing so much better, you know, in this report? Have I even been up there recently? Have I looked up there? Have you know what am I doing to look for key accounts and to look for new accounts or figure out what accounts are 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 are, are you know might have been sleepers but are now suddenly exploding? We see this all over Austin. We see these pockets of town that we drive through one day and there's nothing going on, and then the next day you see all this economic activity, and those are all new accounts, right? And that's where you find and that's just a way of finding these 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 this activity that you may or may not, you may or may not have noticed 
is happening in your communities or around. It's, ama it's amazing what information is out there. So th those yeah. are good, good, really good starting points for people. So, so that's sort of the, the data sets. That's the, you know, the, the information that's out there on a macro level. So let's talk about, you know, we're recording here in January 2022. Uh, mm -hmm. So let's dig in on 2021. Let's do like a year in review, talk about trends and so forth. And you had mentioned uh, production uh, rates, but let's talk about maybe consumption volumes if you have that data. Um, what do the trends look like on how much beer we're consuming here in the U.S.? And what's your take on how the pandemic has affected those consumption volumes? So here we are looking at an industry that's gone through some big turmoil. You know, we had a big drop off in demand when March hit. You know, it, we kind of recovered. And as we recovered out of March through the pantry rush, through the on-premise closures, we had these huge shifts in packaging and in retail channels and where and how and what people are drinking. And that clearly was just inc incredibly disruptive to our trends because numbers guys, we like consistency, right? <laughs> I like 2%, 2%, 2%, yay. You know, and when you go 2%, 100%, minus 50, back to one, you know, you're a little confused. And I think there's still a lot of, 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 distortion and noise in the data that we're looking at that makes any kind of trending still relatively difficult, even though we're almost two years out from the event. So what I see in the, the beer industry is in, 20, in 2020, we were up around 1%, maybe one and a half percent on volume. And that was pretty good, but we had a lot of beer that got thrown away. We had a lot of beer that was lost in stadiums and bars and taverns and restaurants. That beer was pulled out, it was disposed of. No one has really gone back to figure out how much of that production never made it to consumption. So the production, the, the supply and the demand equation is a little out of kilter with itself because of that 2020 uh, shutdown in on-premise and subsequently destroying all that product. Distilled spirits turned, to, you know, and distilled spirits, you know, the Spilled Steers Council came out and said, we're up 5% last year. We did so good. And all they talked about is how much liquor they turned into hand sanitizer, right? And on the production side, they talked about how big they were, but they never talked about how much they didn't sell, right? How much didn't make it to consumer? How much was turned into hand sanitizer? So uh, in 2020 alone, there's a lot of noise in the data. So 2019 to 2020, lots of noise because of the pandemic. Then go 2020 to 2021. Once again, I look at the aggregate numbers, industry's up about one and a half percent. That's pretty good, right? I mean, this is the second year in a row the industry has made more beer than it did in the previous year. So, and that hasn't happened for a while. It's been, a, we've been running a kager of about 0.03 for probably 10 years now, right? If you just do it over 10 years, we're lucky for a 0.03, 0.04 kager in terms of our volume growth and supply. And the population is growing. That means per capita is falling. That's a whole nother story. But for the trends, 2021 ended up about one and a half percent. And I would say that's good, but we still had some supply constraint issues that happened. We know about, uh, we know about leaky seltzer packages that had to be pulled out of the market. We know about certain brewers that put way too much seltzer into the market at the end of the summer that actually had to pull, be pulled out. So 
I think we saw a lot more beer get pulled out in 2021 as well. But, you know, you live and learn, right? Live and learn. You know, if you don't take chances, you don't take risks, you're not going to make money. We just can't, as, as finance guys and as forecasting guys and as analysts guys, we can't be perfect every time. Uh, I, I think that whole seltzer craze that we went through was just a complete failure of analytics. You know, it was people looking at 2020 and some extremely big, strong numbers. And the analysts all sat down and the forecasters and all the, 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 the numbers guys said, well, look what had happened here. Well, we can do it again. And it was only one observation, 2020. And 2020, as we know, was an incredibly abnormal year uh, across so many different things. Uh, and, but no one seemed to look back on time and said, had any other segment done anything like this ever? And the answer would have been no. So those expectations of Seltzer's growth uh, and dominance in the marketplace were just based on one data point and without any thought of how things have played out in the past, which would have tampered everyone's estimates. In the end, we had too much Seltzer in the market. We've seen some cancellations. We've seen some, some product recalls and we've seen some spoilage. We've seen some breakage. We've seen some just let's just cancel the product right out. So now we're in 2022 and we're gonna to have to reevaluate this whole seltzer market. Uh, but I, 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 I digress. So back to your question, you know, 2020, 2021, more beers in the market absolutely than in prior years. That's a good thing for the beer industry because that just means we have more opportunity to sell more beer. Uh, the IRIs and the Nielsen's didn't look so favorable as we came to the end of the year. But once again, they're really discombobulated as well because we saw we saw such a shift in how people were purchasing beer uh, that you know they were they they were not in the on-premise trades they were not at the bars the restaurants the taverns the stadiums they were still want the same amount relative amount of beer so they went to more chain focused stores we saw a lot of independent stores close down. I don't know how it was up in uh, New Hampshire for you, but you know, around the country, a lot of small independent retailers closed, which drove more people into uh, larger chain focused stores, which drove those numbers up. So a lot of apples to oranges out there on the retail side of the numbers. Could you go back, you mentioned uh, Kager a few times, maybe just define for folks what that is. Um, are just com they're compound average growth rates. So you, you know, if you're going from 2000 to two, if you're going from 2010 to 2020, you have 10 periods, and so you can start with the first period, the 2010 period, and go to the 2020, and then over those 10 periods, you just kind of average the growth rates over that period of time, which gives you an average growth rate. So you might be up one percent one year, down one percent the next year. Uh, that goes back and forth to Kager zero. So for us in the beer industry, we're running about a 0.03. So we're a little bit on the positive side of that comp of that that average growth rate, which is we're on the negative side. We have a whole different story. I mean, we've been consistently declining over that 10-year period. And of course, you can play with the Kagers if you want to add an extra year on and take an extra year off. You can change the numbers, as you know so well. But so you can do it in 10 years, 20, 30, 40. You can do a 100-year increment as far as I'm concerned. You're going to see very different numbers. They're just averages over a period of time. Gotcha. Thanks for that. Yeah. Um, one of the sayings that we hear in the beer business is like, you know, beer is recession proof and whatnot. And 
So I'm curious from, from the data, I mean, basically what you were relating maybe supports this, but do you, is it is it pandemic proof too? I mean, is it recession proof, pandemic proof? Do you believe that? And do we have data to kind of support that? Absolutely. I, what I tell people is it's resilient. It's nothing's, nothing's, you know, <clears throat> I got, I got, I got watches and coats and everything else that are waterproof that never proved to be waterproof. So they are resilient, <laughs> but you know, I've, 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 I've had a few watches that were guaranteed to be waterproof that were not. And I think the beer industry is a lot like that. You can, you can say it's what recession proof, but the reality is, is there are underlying forces that are going to change people's behavior. And that's what, and, and the beer industry is a reflection of people's behavior. So how often do you go out to a high-end restaurant versus a quick serve restaurant? How often do you go to the football game and the, and, and the baseball game versus going to maybe a local ballpark instead, right? So as, as, the, as the economy ebbs and flows, you know, people's pocketbooks ebb and flow and where they go and how they drink and what they drink changes as well. So in aggregate, I can look at it and say, oh, look, from 35,000 feet, this industry is very, is relatively recession-proof. When I dig down into the segments, into the channels, I can see a lot of shifting as people's economic circumstances have changed. And of course, like, so we know 2008 and 2010 was the Great Recession, uh, but it, it came with an oil boom. So even though some parts of the country saw a decrease in economic activity, we saw places like North Dakota, West Texas, uh, Colorado, Oklahoma, that, that whole kind of gas oil producing belt had extremely you know, successful economic activity and people were moving in there, they were spending lots of money. And some of those states saw you know, really big uh, uh, increases in, in consumption while other places on this, you know, Nevada, you know, uh, uh, Nevada with its housing, where it was a crush when the housing market hit and so many other places around our country took big hits uh, economically. And that's all a lot of retail establishments closed and we saw a lot of shifting in how people drank. So like I said in the beginning, I, I mean, I can look at all these individual markets and, and, and I can see how some are successful and some are failing, but in aggregate, we still are very predictable consumers of alcohol beverages in total, which gives us that assurance that, wow, it's kind of recession proof. But once again, just like your watch says it's, you know, waterproof, you take it too far, it comes up leaky full of water, right? So yeah. that's kind of like the beer business. I like that watch analogy. That's easy to yeah. remember. <laughs> let's, let's go back to seltzers a little bit. Um, and, and I want to, maybe if you could take us through kind of the growth trajectory in the category, like where it was, where it is, and, you know, where do you see this going? I mean, you, you've certainly, um, alluded to the fact that maybe it was the category is probably a victim of irrational exuberance, right? We're like, got a little bit too excited. Textbook example. Yeah. So where do you maybe take us through just a quick history on where it was and where it's going? So I mean, obviously in 2016 and 2017, it was just like a little small baby segment. It was there. It was kind of out there. I think truly had some bottles, truly had some draft, you know, it was, and people were kind of experimenting. We, you know, we heard rumblings from, uh, you know, from, from, from Mark Anthony, how they were, you know, they were the king of flavors and they knew how to do FMBs the right way. And we heard Boston beer talking about it. Yeah, you get to 2017 and things started to grow, maybe two, three percent. 
Uh, there was some, there was little activity here and there. People were feeling things out. Get 2018, and it, that's when we really started seeing it. And 2019 comes along a little bit more. Uh, and and it wasn't until right 2020 that we saw that huge doubling. We went from three percent to like seven percent, or more than double of that uh, of of share. It was it just skyrocketed. And it skyrocketed during the recession, during the pandemic, because of it was in a can. It was way over indexed in the off premise. And there was always this, there was already momentum for this new innovation category going into, uh, into 2020. And it was clearly over indexed into the, um, uh, into the off premise. And that's where the focus was. So when everything shut down, all of a sudden, you just saw the floodgates open for seltzer opportunity in a can, in a package, something you could stack neatly in your closet and you could stockpile as you stocked your pantry and you maybe went out once or twice, you know, a month to get things during the pandemic. So the circumstances were perfect for that product and that package, right? And if you were you know, if you were, I don't know, a small brewer and you were dependent on 40, 50% draft, you were obviously screwed, right? Because your whole operation was set up to put things into big kegs and no one wants kegs anymore. And so you're, you're limited to what your packaging is because that's the way you, you know, the beer business is a, 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 the beer business is a planning business. We start, what do we want to make? What do we need to make it? Let's get the ordering it and let's get into getting all the things together to do it. So you just, just doesn't turn on a dime. So for seltzers being where they were, when they were, they were just in that perfect opportunity to just, just take off. And, uh, and, 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 and we, we got that eight, 9%, I think in one month it, it hit 10% share following the fintech data and that's the on and off premise combined data set so maybe maybe in july of 2020 it might have hit 10 percent uh of one out of ten one out of ten uh malt based sugar based fermented products that were in the marketplace was a seltzer but it 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 it, it, it established a seasonality that it didn't have in 17 18 and 19 it's 2017 it was pretty flat across the months in terms of its share 2018, pretty flat. And then all of a sudden, 2019, it started to form that seasonal peak of, you know, June, July, August, uh, dominating the, uh, the, the category. And when 2020 got there, it got a really nice seasonal peak. And by 2021, you know, it's firmly established that this is a summer seasonal beverage. You know, you can put all the ugly sweaters, all the peppermint mocha latte seltzers you want out there, knock yourselves out, you know, go crazy. But the reality is the seltzers are going to be a summer beverage. They're going to have a very, very, you know, strong presence over those, the, the, those summer months. And it's going to fall off the rest of the year. And I think that was part of the failure in the planning as well. Because if you look back in the 2017, 2018, 2019, you saw much more, much more spread out across the 12 months. And it wasn't until it really got some dom it, it got some traction in the marketplace that it really formed that seasonal peak, and that's where it belongs. And you know, it ended. It, it ended. Seltzers ended 2021 probably around eight or nine percent of the market. They didn't get to ten. Uh, I imagine 
they're not going to get past 10 in 2022. And the reason I say that is because they, they just failed to, in 2021, they failed to really grab hold of the on-premise. No one has figured out what to do with Seltzer's in the on-premise. I just don't see, I just don't see, you know, maybe stadiums, maybe concessionaires, maybe, you know, golf courses and, and, uh, you know, you know, outdoor venues are really going to like that product because it's white, it's refreshing, it's outside, it, you know, it's in a can package, it's great. I don't see it successful. I don't see anyone's breaking the draft code on seltzers unless they come up with some kind of crazy Coke dispenser, Pepsi dispenser, where you can pick your flavor, you know, pick your base and then add your flavors into it. Maybe someone comes up with it um, and, and launches that. But once again, I don't, I don't see it being, I don't see bars and restaurants around the country, you know, you know, going out to buy a seltzer fountain, you know, so they can, I, I just don't see it. So, you know, seltzers, maybe 3%, uh, uh, in, in the on-premise, I don't see it really getting any larger than that. And as craft brewers come back strong in 2022, uh, and as, you know, taverns come back and bars come back and people climb out of this Omicron, uh, I, I, I think it's going to be hard for seltzers to really, to, to compete against, you know, 10,000 small brewers who have, you know, all those guys still have kegs. Remember the steel kegs? Remember that thing? It's a steel keg. It doesn't disappear. It's made of steel, guys. It's sitting in the back, the back rooms and the and the and, and the loading docks of small brewers around the country. And those guys are itching to put beer back in it and to get out and to get tap handles again. So I, it, it's it's just not going to be easy pickings for the seltzers as the craft brewers come out with you know and start pushing that steel keg float back into the marketplace. Interesting. So you're yeah. seeing the seltzer category probably as a whole from a market share perspective, flattening out or about the same. Yeah, yeah. Compressed I, I, yeah. But still, I mean, it's still going to be almost one out of 10 malt-based, sugar-based products. That's nothing to laugh at, right? It's not, it's not dead. It's not Zima, right? It's not going to vanish. It's not, you know, it's not clear beer. It's not Zemo. It's it's not Bartles and James. I mean, it's here to stay. And I think the the powers, the 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 powers and the 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 strength and the momentum in Mark Anthony in Boston Beer and AB and Molson Coors is going to make sure that 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 these products stay in the marketplace. They innovate and find out what people want. I have full I'm full faith in those companies to do what's the right thing to keep that product moving forward 15 20 share i wouldn't buy into that rhetoric if if, if you're if your regional guys in there talking to you i sure not going to buy into oh we're going to be 15 20 share let's just hold the share and see how we do in the face of this rebuilding of the on-premise with thousands and thousands of small local craft brewers pushing steel kegs out there because that's where the momentum is going to be in 2022 that's a good segue so let's talk about that where did you know, on-premise obviously took it really badly during the pandemic. Everything was shut down or restricted and whatnot. So if you look at, say, 2021, when we still had a hybrid of places were closed or restricted, but it was it was getting better. Where did 2021 land compared to, say, 2019 in on-premise? And what's what's your outlook for this year? Um, you know, it, 80%. I mean, it's I, I just lied. Before we started talking, I kind of looked at it. I'm like, 
and I'm using kind of that draft volume as the measure of, of it, 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 you know, we got to about 80% of where we should have been in terms of what the share of volume is in the, was in the marketplace in 2019. So 2021, we were, we were close. We got close. There's points where I could see it, you know, in different weeks, it was getting close and then Omicron and then this and then that. And, you know, and it was just, you know, it just never really got to full recovery. So all we got to do in 2022 is take that, get that extra 20%, get those extra two beers back into the market, right? That two out of 10 beers just got to come out of the off-premise and go into the on-premise. I, I think it's a doable thing. I, you know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of draft beer. I, you know, the steel keg is the best package you got out there. If you're a sustainability guy, if you, you know, if you think about all the crushed up aluminum cans and crushed bottles and you look at the steel keg, you're like, why isn't a 50% of the U S beer business in steel kegs? And why aren't we, you know, if we're all sustainable and we're all green, you know, let's get people out into the bars and let's get them out into the taverns and out into the stadiums and out into the world and let's all get them a good clean draft beer in their hand because that's the most sustainable package for moving this stuff around. Now, I'm, I'm, you might have some of your listeners who are cursing me right now because those, those are those are those little buggers are heavy <laughs> and there's no fun lugging them around. But, you know, I mean, a little backache for sustainability and for profitability, I think, is, a, you know, you know, is a, is a worthy sacrifice. So I, I, I see I, I'm, I'm bullish on draft beer in 2020. I think we can get from we can get back to that 10, 11 share. Maybe we ended about 8 percent in total industry. We should be around 10, 11. So I can see us getting there in 2022. Uh, I can, I can, I, I have faith that, you know, just the, the aggregate of the small brewer community can get their keg floats back into rotation. I think what we saw in 2021 was a lot of retailers. When I went out drinking in Austin and Maryland and around the country, when I traveled, I saw a lot of empty taps and the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the tap cleaning folks, uh, you know, reported that back to me. Uh, I, I heard a lot of comment that, yeah, there are a lot of empty, there are a lot of empty dra uh, draft lines out there. There's a lot of, there's a lot of taps that don't have beer on it. And uh, it, you know, filling, getting those taps back up are important. And uh, there's opportunity to get beer on them and draft. So I, I think we can do it. And I think people will be after this Omicron wave passes through us in the next four to six months. And, you know, people realize that I think that the, we're, we're, we're at the tail end of this. I, I think we'll see a good, solid resurgence in draft. But that's what I'm oh, I'm, I'm an optimistic guy. They pay me to be optimistic. They don't pay me to be Eeyore or Debbie Downer. So, uh, you know, take that with a grain of salt from your trade association, I guess. But I'm I'm optimistic, and I think we can get we can get that extra that 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 extra beer out in the marketplace and on premise. Nice, I like it. So let's talk about different package types. So, you know, the way people are consuming beer obviously had shifted a lot of you know cans and bottles. What are you seeing on these package mix trends between cans, bottles, draft, and Relatedly, are, are you seeing any new package trends coming out? Any new materials, configurations, 
any stuff like that, or is it pretty much the standard big three? I don't, I mean, I don't see much coming out of that. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, the, the fact that we're well over 60% cans in the U.S. beer industry today is a, is a, is a, you know, remember in 1950, there were no cans, right? We were mostly bottles, returnable bottles, and maybe 40% draft. Uh, you know, that was, that was the fifties guys. We're never going to see those days again, but you know, just from a perspective, now we're at 66, maybe 63, you know, above 60% for cans, below 30% for bottles, below 10% for draft. That's going to change this year. There's no doubt. You know, Ball Corporation came out and said, we can't, we can't possibly make this many cans for this much, you know, the, all this innovation and all this, all this stuff. It's just not physically possible. So, you know, the, the small brewers got the message when they got their, their order, their, their minimum order uh, uh, requirements from Ball. They backed off of it, but, you know, the cat's out the bag. I mean, they're like, we can't get this to you. And the signal is start doing something else and businesses do what businesses got to do to get their beer out of there. And that's why I'm confident in that resurgence of draft, just because the constraints from the bottle to the can guys are definitely nudging these guys in that direction. So, you know, going, I, I think we see cans have peaked that 60% share of the market is, is going to work its way back down. Uh, we have bottle bills around the country, right? We have all these, uh, many states are in the in the midst of some kind of bottle bill, some kind of deposit. How that shapes the beer industry will be very significant, especially you know in in some of these larger states and where they, they and how they play out. Uh, and you know, like I said, it's the the draft the draft side will have to come back. Now, you know, relative to the thirty packs and all those other things, I. I you know, the, the variety pack is always interesting because that variety pack, you know, is still out there and still part of the still still part of the marketplace. And I don't see that changing. I mean, we are only going to innovate more off of that and more off of flavors and innovation that give people the ability to sample through and taste uh, different beers. Interesting. So do you think so that shift from so we peaked at cans? Yeah. And then you think, you think it's going to, is it, is that a, that's a function of supply side or is it consumer behavior? I mean, cause it does, I'm, I'm wondering if are people still, I mean, do people want glass packages or have they just been like cans are so convenient. If I can't get it in cans, I'm not going to buy it. Can you, I mean, that's hard to tease that out, but. It is hard to tease that out. Uh, <clears throat> you know, you think about it. I remember how we got to where we were. Remember, remember, remember when Oscar blues was the only can craft right there was this point where cans cans were sub premium defined cans right and then oscar blues like well wait a sec you know the ball corporation and, and oscar blues and they're like well wait a sec can you know beer doesn't taste that different to the average person coming out of a can versus a bottle and you know how it was good to take have beer in a can and that was kind of the you know you start there and 20 years later here we are 60% of the market is cans. So you kind of got to have a little faith in long-term strategies that move consumers in one direction or the other direction, because the example of what the beer industry with a can is an excellent example of how you can start with a little strategy and a little idea early on. And 20 years later, 
we gotta wait 20 years that's a damn long time i mean i don't i mean i'm not patient i don't i can't even watch paint dry more or less wait for 20 years for packages to sh uh, package shares to shift around but the reality is is that yes we've reached this 60 share of the can of, of the market for cans it's going to come down and things are going to shift around it's slow and if anyone is new to the beer business all that i can the only advice i can tell you is that if you're in it for six, 12, 18 month shifts and changes, you're going to be disappointed. It's things, these things happen slowly. Craft beer revolution was a 25 year revolution. Yeah, right. <laughs> we're in the craft beer revolution, you know, you know, 20, 15 years. Oh, we're in the craft beer revolution. And 25 years later, you know, it's, it's still kind of going on, but it's, you know, the cry of the revolution is, is long over. And they're only 15% of the market for crying out loud. It's not like they, overwhelmed the big macro brewers and took all their share uh, it's just a slow prodding business for us in how it changes so slowly and incrementally over time for sure let's talk a bit more about those segment breakdowns so you you know we've mentioned seltzer and their share where do you see the different segments like premium plus you know light beers craft not and things of that nature how do you see those kind of shifting what are and how are they performing no, we're only going further to the high end. Uh, and Bruce Jacobson from Consolation and Impress, we talked about this way back in the early 2000s. We looked at the data. We looked at how things were happening. We looked at the population. We looked at the incomes. And and it was it was like we could only have more high end. And, and Consolation was one of those companies that bet on the high end and won. Uh, Boston Beer bet on the high end and won. Well, depending on how you define one, their stock price obviously doesn't doesn't reflect that. But where they came from and where they are, that yeah, that definitely worked out. And Kraft, to a certain extent, bet on the high end and won as well. So we're gonna. And I don't know if you know if you uh, uh, there's a gentleman called Rob McMillan. He's with Silicon Valley Bank, the wine division. He is kind of the wine economist for the wine industry. And he had a industry review yesterday, uh, January 19th. And uh, he talked about the same thing that the wine industry is going through. And he showed that he showed that he had a slide and it showed that bottles of wine priced at $50 or more were the fastest growing segment in the wine industry in 2021. So that's $50 a bottle, the fastest growing uh, uh, price segment in the industry was the ultra premium. And when Discus comes out with their industry review, I guarantee you, and whenever, whenever they do it, and it should be up in February, but when they do their industry review, they will be talking about how the ultra premiums segment, ultra premium price segment of the spirits industry was the fastest growing uh, segment of the industry and for the beer industry it's going to be the same thing now this is a function of demographics and economics that i started talking about at the very beginning why we are getting older what happens as you get older you have more money what happens have you more and more money you spend on higher price products you know we are not a young country we are an aging country and that's just how the demographics play out it's what happens when baby boomers get older and it's what happens when millennials get older think about it Millennials are all entering their careers, right? This is their beginning their careers. Well, what happens when you start your career? You typically don't make a lot of money. 
But the minute you get to two, three, five years, when you get to seven and 10 years of work experience, your income jumps and it jumps 25, 30, 40%. So we're going to see this millennial, these 80, 90 million millennials who are pretty well educated and they're pretty smart and they're all working their first jobs, but they're going to move to their second jobs and their third jobs. And as they move through those jobs, what do they do? they get more raises. And as they get raises, their income goes up. And as their income goes up, they spend more on alcohol. That's just the economic relationship between income and spending that is going to drive our industry, as well as wine, spirits, and everything else from more of a premium price world into a, a, a super premium or ultra premium price world. So I'm not going to... Uh, I, I, I just got to say, I mean, I think that trend is going to continue. We see it in beer, we see it in wine, and we see it in spirits as well. Interesting. So you had mentioned earlier, you know, when you were um, doing your work as a young economist and being trained in the ways and the clear, concise, one page, one page in business focus. I'm curious, as you think about the data that you see now, how is it applicable for owners, operators of beer businesses. So for example, do you have guidance or best practices on how folks can take this type of information, this type of data to make better decisions to inform how they're running their business? Oh yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> so I mean, it, 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 there's a package of information. So, you know, like I said, you start with these macro data points, you start with the census bureau, you start with the Bureau of Labor Statistics, you start with the, the, the you start with the information that quantifies and characterizes your marketplace, you know, and you move into the market specific information, the Nielsen, the IRI, the FinTech, yeah, CGA, all that, you know, whomever you choose to really work with. And then you have all these, you know, like I haven't even talked about the DPR, the comp and benefits, the, the industry specific information that the MBWA collects. So the MBWA collects we do a, a distributor productivity report. Every two years, we do a comp and benefits report. Uh, we do the beer purchasers index. And then quantitatively, we have all these very specific distributor uh, in, uh, in pieces of information that you could work with. And what I like to tell people, if they're willing to listen to me and buy me a beer, is that uh, you know when you put all this stuff together, you formulate the strategic plan. You formulate a plan and a, a, a direction based on what you think your demographics are doing, your economics are doing, your businesses are doing, how you stand relative to your competitors and where you think this marketplace is going. So it, it's, the data are there, the information are there, you just need to get them into a, into a format, but you also kind of, it, it is tough. Now, I mean, granted, beer distributors need to sell beer. I mean, if you're sitting around staring at your navel, thinking about long-term demographic trends, you're probably not selling cases of beer. So you, you kind of have to have the luxury and the time to do that. Uh, I think it's a worthy activity to do once a year or twice a year when you sit down and take the breath and take that step out and think about where you're going, as opposed to just go, 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 go and hope for the best. A little bit of back office and, 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 and downtime to think about the direction of the marketplace and what's, what are the positives and what are the negatives. And then using the, the big data from the big, you know, the government, the census, the Bureau, Bureau of Labor Statistics, the imports, the exports, the, the tax pays and where those marketplaces are going. And then just digging down to the specifics of your marketplace and where you stand relative to those, 
that that motion or that momentum or those trends in the marketplace and are you above them or you're below them when you're right on par with them and and then understanding why and then and then communicating that you have a sale you have a management you have a management team you have a sales team you have merchandisers giving those guys that little insights and that they're almost like little glimmers of hope like hey look guys you're in a good place you're in a market that's growing you're in a market that you know it maybe it has challenges but it still has opportunities so all those things need to be put together i like that yeah you can use it in your strategic planning not overdo it but yeah to help set the direction no, 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 you can't yeah yeah you're like a, my, my, my old man always called it sitting around staring at your navel i guess that was an old 1950s thing but uh you know <laughs> yeah you you, you, you got to have your head up and you got to be looking forward but it's still okay to sit down and take a pause and just try to figure out those benchmarks of where you are. So we've had a lot of challenges over the last couple of years, of course. Um, and this is a question I like to ask folks who are on the podcast. Is, have you any favorite lessons that you have to share? Anything that you've learned personally or professionally? And you can answer that any way you like. If it's a financial lesson, business lesson, you know, economic crisis management, you name it. Any, anything come to mind uh, for you? good question uh ask that again yeah i think um when well I'll, I'll go back to what we were talking about offline before we started recording is you live in austin texas you guys had that big weather event you know the, the power grid went down and the, basically the place came to a halt yeah um and from that you know presumably whether it happens or not you know steps can be taken to mitigate or, or try to prevent that going forward. So maybe as you look back over the last year or two, you know, working with beer wholesalers and data and coming to your own conclusions, anything, any lessons that you've maybe drawn from what's happened, whether it's the pandemic specifically, the closures, closures, restrictions, uh, things of that nature, anything you can come to mind there? I mean, ultimately, I think I think the, the the lesson that we learned from seltzers is 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 probably most important. And I just remember how everyone was talking about how they were all going to grow individually twenty percent or twenty share. And you know, I started doing the math on White's Hard Lemonade and and and, and White Claw and Truly, and I'm like, well, if all these guys, if if if, if every one of these guys was right then we got this outcome, right? And everyone was so focused on the myop, on, on, on the details and they're looking, they're so, their heads were down, they were focused on the details and the, the guys that had White Claw were like, yeah, White Claw's gonna do this, you know? And the guys that had Truly, Truly's gonna do this and Bud's gonna do this and Vizzy's gonna do that and Press is gonna do that and everyone had these, but no one lifted their head up and said collectively, this can't happen. It's just a physical impossibility that every one of these guys are what they're saying is going to be true. So, you know, and, and everyone had all their money pushed over on that, on that, all their chips were sitting on the white claw, all their chips were sitting here. And I just think they just didn't diversify and, and, and lift up. And so the lesson I think that the pandemic taught us is that, you know, you really gotta, you really gotta look at this in, in in a holistic way, in a macro way, as well as a micro way, and don't let the micro analysis perspective with the macro. 
There's only so many stomachs in the country. There's only so many store shelves. There's only so many occasions and opportunities in, in a year that we can have a beer. And if 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 you look at what every what if you look at what all the suppliers are saying and you add it all up and it doesn't make sense, you know someone's math is wrong. And collectively, Mark Anthony did bad math. Boston Beer did bad math. Molson Coors did bad math. Those guys are all guilty of bad math because the analysts who were doing the forecast were not benchmarking to a boundary. And, you know, there's a boundary. There's only so much. <laughs> and, and, and maybe you took calculus. Maybe you took some, some linear algebra. I don't know how mathematically inclined or anyone is listening. But you remember that all these things have boundaries. You know, there's an X and a Y axis. And there's, 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 there's peaks. And there's, 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 there's limits to these things. And if, if, if you look at what the individuals are saying and you add it up and it exceeds the boundaries, someone's math is wrong. And I, I felt that I, I talked to, I, I, felt, I, I felt that back then. And I was like, you just can't have that much because we're bounded by it. So if you're gonna do a forecast and you're gonna think about a market opportunity, make sure you understand the boundary. How many people do you have? How much do they drink in a year? And and, and, and what's that multiplication? It's not hard math. People times days times occasions, you know, times servings gives you the maximum that you can sell in any given space. And if your forecasts from three different suppliers exceed that or four different suppliers or 10 different suppliers, if you look at all the forecasts and expectations from your suppliers and you show them the people times the occasions times the math times the days, you just can't cram that much liquid into it. At least you can mathematically show them that they are not thinking through the problem correctly. Mm. And that's what I think the lesson of the pandemic and of seltzers should teach everyone in the beer business is that guys, just do the arithmetic. I'm not asking math. I'm not asking calculus. I'm not asking, I'm just asking elementary math. Size of your market, number of days in your market, number of retailers, number of people, you can multiply all those out and there's there will be a maximum that you can get. And if your suppliers are showing up asking for more than that maximum, you have to say, no, I can't give that because my people my people can't take this. They can't drink it. It's physically, they, they, they'd explode if they consumed that much product. That's the lesson I think that we need to take away from this pandemic. Yeah, we would call that like a sniff test, right? You know, you could do all this, all this analysis and so forth, but really, you know, does it smell right? Do just do the common sense sniff test, and sometimes yeah. it doesn't. Yeah, I know, and and I know it doesn't. And seltzers did not pass. Seltzers in twenty twenty one did not pass the sniff test when we started twenty twenty one, and all that guidance came out, and all those expectations came out. It didn't smell right. It just didn't smell right because you just can't go there given all that we have to choose from. Mm -hmm. So last question for me before we uh, start to wrap up, I'm curious uh, to learn from different people what sort of beer industry information uh, they're reading. So what are you reading? Where do you turn to for your sources of information? Um, any recommendations on either websites or newsletters or anything that you, that you, you know, you get the cup of coffee and you sit down and you, fire up the laptop, what do you, what do you look at on a regular basis? 
you know, I I try to stay up on all of the trade rags. I try to stay up on all of our our industry press from Beer Business Daily, the Beer Markers Insights, to Brew Bound. Uh, I I love I, I love watching and keeping track of our of our uh, of our uh, you know our Twitter guys and our Instagram guys and seeing what they're thinking because I think that's always just at a very basic level and you know i think that's good stuff to follow uh i i you know you know bump williams puts out a letter uh there's 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 no shortage of people writing commentary about the industry and about what they see so all of those things i all of those sources it's just it's such an overwhelming amount of information uh that we see out there and uh you know for me in particular it's the for me, it's not so much what's going on in the industry because you can follow the Wall Street analysts, you can follow, you know, the the, the beer influencers and the beers, the 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 beer bloggers. You can follow the trade press. You can follow the big media. For me, I like the stuff that's on the periphery. I like I like you know, the Freakonomics radio guys. You know, I love Freakonomics, and I love, you know, I. You know, I, I love how they they kind of they they kind of reach outside the box a little bit and pull it in to make it uh, relevant to you know everyday you know economic decisions. So there's a lot of podcasts that are out there uh, that I that I that I enjoy listening to and following as well. So it's a, it's a big that's a big question. Uh, so it's that's 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 interesting. Now I. I just have to say whatever's out there when you do a hashtag beer and you search through it and you see what everyone's talking about. I think that's just as good. I, I do. I'm a big LinkedIn guy. So I do like keeping track of what everyone's doing in the beer economics group on LinkedIn. I think that's fun because you get a little international flavor out there as well. Great. Well, Lester, this has been great. A lot of information uh, here. Really appreciate your time. So if, oh, yeah. if folks want to pleasure. learn more about, the NBWA, join the association, yeah. um, or learn more about what you have going on. I know you have um, information that you put out. What's the best way for folks to uh, kind of find that information? So on the website, nbwa.org website, uh, we do, like I said, we have kind of data and reports. We do the beer purchasers index every month. I ask beer distributors, you order more, you ordering less. And it's just, a, it's a, the simplest thing. It's modeled after the purchasing managers index, which has been around for decades. Uh, it's proven a very good leading indicator for the marketplace. We saw Seltzer, we saw that purchases manager, the beer purchasers index dive off very early on before even anyone knew that Seltzers were on the decline. You know, the group that does the beer purchasers index knew right away. We knew there was supply chain problems coming up. We do on that survey, we do an out of code inventory at risk of going out of code. We ask people, are you, you know, are, are things getting a little lean? Or are they getting a little tight? How do you feel about your inventory? That gave us great indications about how and where the supply chain crunches were coming up. And, and, and that's proven incredibly useful. And then comp and benefits, DPR, and all the other kind of analytical stuff that we do in the industry, for the industry and for our members, it's all out there. It's on the MBWA website. I have an email there. You can I mean, don't email me at any time. I'll do my best to send you slides and insights and information that I have just randomly setting aside that I send to people all the time. So if you're a member of MBWA, you know, reach out, participate, and we'd love to have you uh, 
uh, reaching out to us and we like to help uh, help you guys do better business and make more money. Love it. It's a buffet of information. Yes, a buffet of information. That you can wash down with a frosty. More like a Four Seasons buffet as opposed to a Golden Corral buffet, though. <laughs> now, let's say premium now. Let's remember, this is a Four Seasons buffet, guys. It's not a Golden Corral buffet. Love it. Lester, thanks so much for the time. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Beer Business Finance Podcast, where we combine beer with finance so that you can improve financial results in your beer distribution business. For more resources, tools, guides, and online courses, please visit beerbusinessfinance.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free weekly beer finance newsletter. Until next time, get out there and improve financial results in your beer business today.